Welcome to the Dudes in Doxology podcast. It is episode two. I hope you are doing well. We're joining you from the beautiful, beautiful summer evening campus of Ankeny Free Church, the home of foxes. And Lots of foxes. And sound Actually, theological fun. doctrine. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the foxes, they've grown up now. Kyle, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, JD? I'm doing, wow, your voice sounds so soulful. I'm doing Ooh. really well. Uh, I'm a little tired. I preached this morning uh, twice. First service was, I was just super sweaty. Like, like insanely sweaty. I couldn't tell. Where, did you go to first service or I second did. service? I did go to first service. Like, it, I was so sweaty, it was rolling like into my mouth. You did great. <laughs> Hunter, how are you? Not That's about too bad. Sweat beads running into my mouth. I don't have sweat beads going into my mouth, so I'm not. I'm I mean, I felt, I felt like TD Jakes on a summer day. Man, I was roasting. Uh, so TD Jakes today. <laughs> yes. You feel like an IFB pa- pastor on a, the IFB clips page? Do you follow TD Jakes on Instagram? He no, dude. You should you should check out his Instagram page. He, that that guy wears some interesting outfits. He does. The only time I see his uh, outfits are when he ends up on the uh, Preachers and Sneakers page, which Preachers has happened sneakers. a couple times. Yeah, or like uh, Babylon B. Anyways, guys, welcome to the second episode of the Dudes and Doxology pod- Podcast. I'm JD, joined, as always, by Hunter and Kyle. We're glad to be with you, and uh, yeah, glad to be with you for this second episode. We're going to start off like we do every episode with a short uh, devotional, and today it is my turn. Uh, to this uh, this episode, we're going to be chatting uh, just a little bit uh, for our devotional about the relationship between the Old and New Testament. Uh, are both inspired? Is one uh, inspired over the other? Are both uh, considered God's word? Does the New Testament have the same power and the authority as the Old or? Vice versa. And did the New Testament authors themselves, when they were writing the New Testament, did they believe what they were writing was actually scripture? I really have just have two uh, passages to share with you as we're chatting about this. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul tells his readers, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So in other words, what Paul is saying here, he's saying his words are authoritative commands from God. And Paul also told the church in Thessalonica, the the Thessalonians, that what he was teaching them was not a human word in 1 Thessalonians 2, but actually the word of God. And Peter was, was, was aware of Paul's writings and consider them authoritative as well alongside the other scriptures, as he says in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. One more passage I'll share with you. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 18 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborers deserves his wages. This seems like a random verse, but here's why it's important. Paul provides two quotations that he explicitly refers to as Holy Scripture. The first quotation is from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and the second quotation is from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And so here Paul is quoting from both the Old and the New Testaments side by side, two verses, and calls both of them Scripture, thus showing that both the Old Testament and New writings that would become the New Testament are equally authoritative 
for Christian believers. Why is this important? Hunter Kyle, you want to chime in? Why is this important to view the Old Testament and New Testament as on the same level, but different? Well, we first see hints of the gospel in the Old Testament. Specifically, I believe the first time that we see the gospel is in Genesis 3 when the proto-evangelium. Yes, when God tells Eve that her seed will ultimately end up crushing the head of the serpent. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus has done on the cross, the crushing of Satan's powers. Uh, Moreover, throughout the whole Old Testament, we see the promises that Jesus fulfills, whether that's the gospel we see preached to Abraham by the angel who says that uh, through you all nations will be blessed. We know that to be the person of Jesus through their, our reading in the New Testament, but the Old Testament is the first place where we see the gospel coming through. You know what I really appreciate? So we just finished, uh, those of us in Ankeny Free Church, which is where we're recording this, which is where we all go to church and serve at. We just finished a series last Sunday on Genesis. We've just finished the entire book of Genesis, all 50 chapters. And what I learned, one of the many things I should rather say is, is even in the latter chapters of Genesis where you have a lot of the details about Joseph and his brothers and their reconciliation and, uh, you know, Judah's transformation and bringing Jacob down to Egypt, um, even in what might seem like arbitrary details you, you still saw foreshadows of Christ, even in chapters 48 and 49. I mean, that's, I mean, those two are specifically on my mind because I preached through those two chapters, but you, you see Jacob when speaking to Joseph and then Jacob, when speaking to the rest of his sons, talking about Christ, uh, in a figure, um, that will come and that will change everything. Kyle, why is it important? Why is this topic important of seeing the Old Testament and New Testament on the same playing field but different? Well, really, the New Testament, it doesn't really make any sense without the information given in the Old Testament. That's true. Um, The significance of Jesus dying on a cross, um, the significance that Jesus was going to be a suffering servant. You need need both of those things, and they're very important. Um, I mean— what it, most of the New Testament is quoting or interpreting or recording some kind of thing from the Old Testament in a new way in the new in the in light of the new covenant of um, of grace rather than the law. Um, and really, everything that happens in the Old Testament it seems to get you know wrapped up, so to speak, in the New Testament. So it's important for us to when we're trying to read the New Testament to look back at the Old Testament because it it helps us to understand exactly what's going on in the New Testament. There's this ultimate telos of like the Old Testament that it's all pointing to the person of Jesus. We see that from Luke uh, 23 when he's walking down the Emmaus Road with his disciples and there he tells them the prophets, the writings, the Old Testament, this was all about me. And then he goes through it with them. Unfortunately, we don't get a recording of what that exact conversation was, but he points to them and tells them every place in the scriptures that were pointing to him. And that's one thing I'm looking forward to in glory is like getting a recap of that conversation because that'll be glorious. And then anything that didn't get completed in the life of Jesus, right? It gets it, everything that Revelation talks about, it kind of brings it all together. 
Yeah, while you guys were chatting, I looked up how many times does the New Testament quote the Old Testament, and it from uh, a very reliable source, uh, Wikipedia. It says there are 283 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and in about 90 instances, the Septuagint is quoted literally, and in about another 80 further instances, the quote is altered in some way. So you have well over 300 um, at least close to quotations or direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. They are interwoven in in so many ways. Not only that, but a lot of the symbolism you see in the New Testament, particularly books like Revelation— you cannot understand that without looking to the Old Testament, particularly books like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel. They give us the information we need to better understand what Revelation is telling us. If we go into Revelation without our Old Testament understanding, we are going to come up with some wonky beliefs. And people do come up with wonky beliefs about Revelation. Oh, absolutely. So I know a lot of people say if you're going to start with one book of the Bible— um, don't like, do Revelation. What would you read? Yeah, re- don't do Revelation. But I know a lot of people say like the book of John or, um, you know, Romans would be tough. Um, you know, the book of Proverbs. But like, so like, let's just remove the, the New Testament. If you're going to pick a book out of the Old Testament, what would you first tell people to start with? I'll go first because I want to take it. Um, I, I mean, I, I would truly choose Genesis. And that might be what you guys can choose that too. But I, I just think... Since having studied Genesis this past these past two years at our church, uh, Genesis is just so rich and chock full of so much that is uh, necessary to understand as you go through the rest of the narrative of the Bible. And so much of the rest of the Bible references back to certain aspects of Genesis and the account or the accounts recorded there. I think I would have to say uh, Ruth. Um, there's a lot of things about the book that are you know specific to that time period but at the same time the the core message of the book is the gospel it sometimes at one time i heard it called the fifth gospel um obviously it was written long before the gospels but the message is so strongly there that it kind of can prime you for other things that come later in the new testament right that christ is our ultimate kinship redeemer right right for me, I would probably, who it's a hard one. Genesis is really close second, but I think I would go with Isaiah. Uh, oh, Isaiah as a book, choice. just it foreshadows Christ so much in the prophecies there. I don't know how you read the suffering servant as anybody other than Christ. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I've heard other people give the explanation for why it might be uh, Hezekiah or one of the kings of Israel. But ultimately, we don't see those folks dying for the sins of the people and being crushed in the sense that the suffering servant is in Isaiah. So I believe that that particular passage gives us the clearest glimpse of Christ in the Old Testament. When I think of Isaiah 53, one of the um, things that come to mind is the uh, Ben Shapiro podcast where he had John MacArthur have you guys heard that podcast yep. where John yeah. MacArthur literally preaches the gospel to Ben Shapiro? I mean, through answer, answering his questions, um, but he only uses Old Testament references. I, I I haven't listened to the podcast episode in a couple of years, but I don't think he ever quotes anything from the New Testament. It's all Old Testament because Ben Shapiro is is a Jew and, um, you know, still waiting on the Messiah. All right. 
Thanks, JD, for sharing that, getting us started on that devotional. Well, wanted to talk also briefly about some uh, some news that's going on. News from the pew. News from the pew. Yes. So this will be um, news what that what if your church doesn't have pews. Well, our church doesn't have pews. That's true. So what are we going to do? That's true. News from the row of chairs. Yeah, from the row, <laughs> from the from the stackable chairs, from the cushioned chairs. Yeah, so we're going to talk about some news. Uh, Specifically, I found this article talking about um, a recent uh, Supreme Court case in which um, there was a Christian website designer who had, um, I don't know, they had been hired to create a website for um, a gay couple's wedding. And the um, Supreme Court ruled that the state of Colorado cannot punish them for refusing to do that. And um, the headline, this is going to be uh, from the ChristianPost.com. The headline is, Colorado can't punish Christian website designer for refusing to create sites against her beliefs. Yeah, then it adds, in a decision released Friday morning in the case of 303 Creative LLC versus Ellenus. The high court ruled six to three that Lori Smith of 303 Collective cannot be compelled by state civil rights laws to make websites that go against her sincerely held religious beliefs. I think one thing that's worth noting on this, um, that might be a little different than what you just said, is she actually never had a gay couple approach her. She sued the state because they had enacted a law that said you have to accommodate people for whatever reason. And, um, in this instance, she was afraid that a, a gay couple was going to approach her to create a wedding website, which was primarily what she was doing, and that would be the specific thing that went against her religious beliefs. So this was a proactive thing that she did prior to, and it's actually a follow-up of a, I believe it was a 2017 court case called, uh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting it, but it was a cake case. There was a I remember that. Colorado baker who refused to bake a cake for a Why is it always in couple. Colorado? I don't know. Their civil rights commission specifically went after uh, the bakery, though, and was actually very uh, punitive towards him. And the court ultimately ruled against him on very narrow grounds, saying you guys acted with animus towards this person who was saying he would refuse to bake cakes. And because you had specifically gone after him, we are not going to uphold this decision. And that was a much narrower ground. They were saying in this specific instance, he did not have to build a cake. This ruling is a little bit broader in the sense that it was saying, hey, you don't even have to do this because it's a violation of your religious beliefs. One thing that I would also note about this is that it is saying that the state cannot punish you for doing that. 100% a corporation can do whatever they want. Yeah, right. So... They can't, you know, go against somebody and say, because you're black, I can't serve you or something like that. That's still fundamentally illegal. That goes against our Civil Rights Act. But I don't think any of us would say that that's a good thing. Um, and particularly here, I think what she was trying to say in her argument was there's also a First Amendment free speech issue as well, that when you're compelling me to make something that's creative, you're compelling me to use my own speech in some way. Yeah, so uh, the article quotes, in 2016, Lori Smith, man, 2016, that's the year I graduated from college. That's a long time ago. Lori Smith of 303 Creative filed a pre-enforced challenge, enforcement challenge to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, arguing that the law would force her 
to offer services that violated her sincerely held belief that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. And because Colorado's law targets conduct, not speech for regulation, and the act of discrimination has never constituted protected expression under the First Amendment, our Constitution contains no right to refuse service to a disfavored group. Right. And there are times where laws get enacted where they say that it's going after specific conduct, but it's very clear that they're also going after particular types of speech. I, I think that that's just that's just intuitive when we say that, oh, you can't go around pamphleting and we're going after the conduct, not the speech. Really, you're not going after the pamphleting. You don't really care about the pamphleting. You care about what's in the pamphlets. Yeah, overall, I think uh, it's a very good thing that they made that decision. Six, six to three, right? Yeah, that's, that's very good. Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor filed a dissenting opinion being joined by Justices Elaine Kagan and Kajani Brown-Jackson, claiming that the majority, quote, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. Are homosexuals or people who would fall under the LGBTQ banner, are they considered a protected class? Under federal law and most states' laws, yes. So under Iowa law, your um, sexual orientation is protected. I'm not sure if gender identity is a protected class, but I know that sexual orientation is. Yeah, I love how um, the article ends with, imagine telling Taylor Swift that she has to warble whatever lyrics the government directs her to sing because no one writes songs quite like she does. That's the same thing. Right. And that's that's where the issue comes down to. The biggest thing for me is not compelling people to say something like if a gay person say you own a business that's a gas station and a gay couple comes in and they want to buy a soda. I don't think that you should refuse service to a gay couple that comes in and tries to buy a soda. But when they're coming in and saying you have to make something that's specific for the specific thing that you disagree with, that's the line that I don't think should be crossed. Yeah. Or like you have to participate in you know, like, you know, let's even go like a wedding photographer. You, we want to hire you to come photograph our wedding. And let's say, uh, you know, no, I don't want to do that. Um, and maybe you're just like very straightforward, like, because I believe, I don't think this is a valid marriage, you know, in, in the eyes of God. Um, and, uh, you know, they would then probably sue you. Um, uh, so yeah, it's good that, uh, Colorado, uh, this lady in Colorado was, her uh, rights were upheld by the Supreme Court. That's good. Right. So, Hunter, maybe you can speak more to this, but I, that right before that mention of Taylor Swift, it says, um, it's a quote from, um, quote from, um, oh, yeah. Sorry, don't laugh at me. Uh, incredibly, the majority even decided that as a person of unique, distinct creative skills, I constitute a monopoly. And as a monopoly, I have no legal right to retain my artistic freedom. I don't understand what they might be talking about when they say something like that. So let me look that up because I need to read that myself because I did not understand that as you said that because that's not a clear sentence at all. 
Yeah, in an opinion column published by Real Clear Religion a few months after the panel decision, Smith argued that the ruling against her showed that the courts are even more open than many of us realize to letting officials punish religious freedom and silence silence free speech. Incredibly, the majority even decided that as a person of unique, distinctive, created skills, I constitute a monopoly. And as a monopoly, I have no legal right to retain my artistic freedom, Smith added. The more unique my speech becomes, the more power the government has to regulate it. To me, that doesn't doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. I don't understand where that train of thought even comes from. Yeah, I'm not sure. And honestly, this is not somebody, this is kind of somebody's commentary on right. the specific thing. And one thing I do have to say about the U S Supreme court is when you try and guess what they're going to do, you're almost always going to get it wrong because they always surprise you in the weirdest ways. Um, I don't know what she means by that with the whole creating a monopoly of services. Um, but I, the way that I understand this case is it is specifically for your creative and unique skills like if you have something that you offer that's in an artistic category and somebody wants you to create something that's that's where the violation is occurring so if you were to say that you know like uh, the cake baker previously somebody came in and said you have to make a cake for my gay wedding he'd say no but i have 20 cakes out there that are pre-made you're more than welcome to come get one if he would say you can't even take one of my pre-made cakes, we would be in a different area, but that's not fundamentally where we are. It's about the next step of forcing the person to create something that they disagree with. So maybe what they were meaning talking about a monopoly is like they you are, they're trying to say you are the person that we can go to. And if you can't do it for us, then no one can. And so we have to make you do it. Do and think I think that would be such a rare instance of any type thing. Like, for a photographer, there's a million wedding photographers right. out there. Same with videographers, caterers, pretty much anything that provides services for weddings. I mean, the three of us are married. Those were some of the worst decisions to have to make. Oh, who do you want to be your photographer? Who do you want to cater? Maybe it wasn't hard for you guys. It was hard for me. I didn't have to make that decision. Kyle, you weren't involved, apparently. N- no, not very much. That was before my sister was a photographer. So Ah, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, we definitely would have had my sister take pictures, I'm sure. Because of discounts. Did you probably do it for yes. free, to be honest? All right. Hey, that was news from the pew. Thank you, Kyle. All right, we're going to move on to hot topics. Hot topics, recent news that made headlines that has to do with culture or morality that we find interesting. And we're going to take turns presenting on this one as well. And today, presenting of our hot topic segment is Hunter Thorpe. Hunter, tell Thanks us about the Near Link. Yes, so the Neuralink is an invention by famed billionaire Elon Musk. It had just received an FDA approval for human testing. Um, So the idea behind this is this is a thing that you would connect to your brain, and after connecting it to your brain, it would allow you to augment your body. And ultimately, I think it's kind of got mixed purposes. I think after I explain it a little bit, you'll all agree that some of the purposes or some of the ideas of the use could be good and others would not be a little bit of history behind human augmentation. Uh, this is not, this would not be the first thing we've ever used to augment a human in the sense that we've done, uh, prosthetics that are semi robotic. 
We have pacemakers that have been around since the 1950s that help people regulate their heart and insulin pumps that are also robotic that have been around since the late 70s. This, in that sense, would not be a new augmentation. However, this would be the first one that has something to do with your brain. And Mr. Musk has said in the past that the original intent of this idea is to have something where, say you have a disconnect in your spinal cord due to a spinal injury, you could have this implanted in your brain. It would bypass the place in your spinal cord that has the mistake and go to the lower part of your body, allowing you to walk again, use your arms, things like that. I think all of us can agree as a medical thing, that's a really cool idea. But the next problem or the problem with this is the next step that Musk says would be after we get past the medical uses of it. He believes that ultimately we could use this to create a collective human conscious that we could all upload ourselves into to make ourselves live forever, essentially, in this fake world. Hate that. I hear that. And there's two things that come up. It's humans trying to play God, which always ends up poorly. And the other is that sounds like the Matrix, which sounds like a horrible thing. Yeah. So when you brought this up, like, I, to be honest, I wasn't that familiar with it. Um, yeah. I mean, this I mean, just um, a couple quotes from this article uh, about it. Neuralink employees told um, Reuters last year that the company was rushing and botching surgeries on monkeys, pigs and sheep resulting in more animal deaths than necessary as Musk pressured staff to receive FDA approval. The animal experiments produced data intended to support the company's application for human trials. In one instance, in 2021, the company implanted 25 out of 60 pigs with the wrong size devices, and all the pigs were subsequently killed, an error that employees could have um, you know, easily avoided with more uh, preparation. In May, U.S. lawmakers urged regulators to investigate whether the makeup of a panel overseeing animal testing at Neuralink, uh, Neuralink contributed to botching and rushed experiments after Reuters reported on potential financial conflicts on the panel. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Right. And I think from our perspective, it has to deal with what does it do to the create unique, uh, excuse me, unique creativeness that God has put in us. We all have, we're all made in the image of God. We all believe that we have some certain things that are endowed to us because we are, we are, we are that just that we are created in the image of God. Um, ultimately, I think this kind of goes against that because what it's trying to do is it's trying to make us something beyond what we are supposed to be. It's trying, it's humans trying to add more to what God has given us, what God has created us for. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates us, he gives us specific tasks, specific roles, and he kind of limits humans. And this is ultimately something that's trying to bypass the limitations of humans. Uh, we are, in essence, trying to make ourselves gods, which is something that has been done throughout history multiple times. The Romans tried to make themselves gods. The Greeks tried to make themselves gods. And Secular humanism is now trying to do the same thing. It's trying to find a way to transcend the mortality of our body in a way that is just, in my view, insane. And I think, you know, this is also very different from, say, plastic surgery. You know, we are where, you know, with plastic surgery, you know, it could be a medically necessary thing. If you're in a horrible accident or burn, you know, like a burn victim, you need to get skin grafts, things like that. But um, by and large, that's just taking something that our bodies are made to do and just fixing it or augmenting it or making it slightly different. But this is going beyond that and giving entirely different functions. Right. And that's 
that's why I believe we have to look at the fundamental two differences that Musk has proposed for it. The first one, the medical reason sounds fantastic. If we could find a way to fix spinal cord injuries, that's mm-hmm. something that would be phenomenal because to date, we still don't have a cure for those type of things. Uh, this uh, Washington Post article about uh, Neuralink uh, receiving FDA approval uh, talks about how they put a they put one of these chips in a monkey and they taught him how to play uh, a computer game Pong with his mind. Isn't that crazy? Wow. <laughs> Part that's of me insane. thinks that's super cool, but super creepy. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way about that. I'm getting like Planet of the Apes vibes. What? How do you guys feel about I'm watching the- a YouTube video right now about it, man. From oh. the Neuralink YouTube channel. Is that a monkey or is that? That's a chimpanzee. Yeah. Dude, that's nuts. Sorry. That's nuts. Well, what do you guys think about the medical use of this? Let's start at the very base, like what the first intended use of this is. I think when it comes down to, yeah, like helping paralyzed people walk or... Um, uh, you know, if, if you've lost the, you know, I, I don't know, like I, the first, the first thing that comes to mind is like, you know, paralyzed people or quadriplegic, uh, people who suffer from that, um, to help them gain a certain quality of life back. Um, I, I'd be interested to see what that is when you start implanting something into someone's brain. Just that's that phrase alone makes me uncomfortable. Um, because you know, who has control of that thing? Um, you know, like whatever, you know, company like this, this sounds like the bad plot of a, of a movie, like billionaire trillionaire uh, wants to help people. And so he implants this, you know, computer chip into a bunch of people's brains. And at first go, it looks like it's a mass, you know, smash success. And then he turns them all into his, you know, army of, you know, droids or whatever, and then takes over the planet. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what it sounds like. Um, I think that's the plot of a Kingsman, the first movie, (laughs) but I've always joked around with a couple of my friends that Elon Musk is like one day of insanity away from being a James Bond villain. And this is the perfect example of that. He has something that he's implanting in somebody's brain. And if Neuralink is able to do anything with that, that is very problematic in the sense that he could do something to, I don't know. I don't know how it actually works in the implant, but if you can make people do things, uh, that's wild. But imagine he can, you know, troll people as well because Elon right. Musk is a little bit of a troll sometimes. Imagine on uh, April 1st at uh, 12.01 a.m., people that have this just get a uh, right. Rick Astley's never going to give you up just playing in their head like constantly. Uh, the director well, of research uh, advocacy with the physicians committee uh, said this Musk needs to drop his obsession with sticking a device in our heads. If he cared about the health of patients, he would invest in a non-invasive brain computer interface. I think that might be true. I think implanting in the brain is one step that's it's while the at least initial intent is good. I, I, I do have problems with planting something in my head. Uh, I have to say, even if I were in a position where I was uh, paraplegic, I I don't think I would do that. I would think I would accept my lot in life and say, this happened. Um, I don't trust people enough to put a device in my head without knowing the full implications of what it can do and what some company who put this in my head, what their long-term goals are with it. I'm not one to over-spiritualize things or, you know, like John Haggy. 
talk about the blood moons and all these <laughs> things. Like I'm not one to like just constantly talk about end time stuff. Um, but I will talk about it for just a brief moment. Does this give you guys like end times mark of the beast type of vibes? Because it, it is giving me a little bit of that. Um, and you know, whether we want to say the mark of the beast is like a physical, like a tattoo almost, or it's something, you know, put into your arm to be a part of the, you know, one world economy, one world order, or it's a new, you know, Neuralink type of computer chip that's implanted into your brain to, you know, quote unquote, help you. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm getting a little bit of <laughs> that eerie, eerie feeling of this, uh, you know, is getting uh, dangerously close to kind of that arena of we're trying to mark slash implant a certain uh, portion of um, of the populace to uh, be allowed to have these privileges or or do something uh, or you know now we know who's with us or who's not with us. I don't know. Throwing that out there sounds like you know the the first use that Elon Musk said would be something that they would use Neuralink for while it's a very good thing, right? The second thing is where we see, we can see a lot of potential for very bad things happening. I think that, um, maybe this wouldn't, I'm not going to say that this would be the mark of the beast or anything, but I can definitely say it does sound like there's some elements along with it that are similar sounding to how the Bible describes that, you know, you're not allowed to buy or sell things while, you know, you put a chip in somebody's brain. It's pretty easy to tell whether they have it or if they don't, because people aren't born with chips in their heads. Right. Um, I mean, just for reference, uh, revelation 13, starting at verse, we just want, I just want to point out you're the first person to pull up revelation revelation on the podcast. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, (laughs) starts at, uh, starting at verse 16 says also it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. There we go. So breaking news here on the dudes and doxology podcast. The Neuralink is the mark of the beast. Mark it down. You didn't say that. I definitely did not say that. I heard you whisper. It's two to one, but or maybe it's it, three to zero. I don't know. It's three to zero, but, <laughs> but maybe two and a half. I, I, if you would have told me a couple of years ago that you could do all your commerce on your cell phone, I would have thought that was insane, but now you can put your debit card, your credit card, whatever on your cell phone. You can do all your commerce. You can keep your driver's license in some state, your insurance, everything. The need for a wallet and everything we previously needed to participate in the economy is getting smaller and smaller. So the idea of this like link being in your brain that you could just, you know, tap your head against something and get uh, get something paid for or just an, an additional like mark on your hand that comes from this link isn't the craziest thing. But I will say that I don't believe this is the mark of the beast. I just think that's no, right. no, no. I was, I, I, you're being clear. Facetious, yeah. I was just saying this seems like it's in that arena. Right. Um, of things that would be, you know, close to or similar to, just to be clear to our podcast listeners, I do not think that near link is the mark of the beast, but I think it's, it's in that same ballpark. Uh, I was also gonna, um, share like, think how, think how much, social media companies and our phones gather info from us just from our social media habits and what we view scroll past quickly stay on for a while think of how much more like tailored content or tailored ads or you know other things that 
theoretically you could get from having literally something in someone's mind, knowing their thoughts. Covenant eyes. I know what you need to do next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Covenant eyes comes out with the, with the pure link. All dirty thoughts eradicated. Gone. This episode is brought to you by Covenant Eyes. Sponsors. All right. That was very interesting. Thanks, Hunter. Um, yeah, Hunter, we're going to stick with it with uh, this week in church history. This week in church history. Why, Kyle, is church history important? Why should we study church history? We should study history because we can learn from it. You know, we can know more and make the not make the same mistakes that people made in the past. So what happened this week in church history? So July 17th of the year 481, the Council of Eph- the Second Council of Ephesus adjourned. Right, JD, it adjourned, it didn't just end. It adjourns. Well, there's a D in there. Zajon. Adjourned. Adjunct. At the Second Council of Ephesus, when it adjourned, they condemned Nestorianism and Pelagianism. And those for the for those ne- of you who don't they know, they condemned a nepotism. What N- Nestorianism? Oh, what's that, Kyle? Nestorianism was an ancient heresy that they were talking about at the Second Council of Ephesus. <laughs> so it's named after the guy named Nestorius, who is the archbishop archbishop. Wow, of Constantinople. Nestorianism is based on the belief. I'm I'm quoting something right now in case anybody was wondering. Nestorianism is based on the belief put forth that emphasized the disunity of the human and divine natures of Christ. So Nestorianism would say that um, there is not this cohesive working between the human nature and the divine nature of Christ. Uh, Further, according to Nestorius, Christ essentially exists as two persons sharing one body his divine and human natures are completely distinct and separate. So rather than affirm um, traditional Orthodox Christian beliefs that there is in one person, two natures, uh, human and divine in Christ, um, that there are two separate, um, two more, way more separate uh, things going on with Christ. So the traditional Orthodox view is called the hypostatic union, which yeah. teaches that... Amen. <laughs> Philippians 2 7. Look yes. at us. Yes, it teaches that Christ is both fully God and fully man and one undivided person. Uh, the issue with Nestorianism actually began over, it's weirdly enough, it started as a question about Mary. Yep. Um, so the question was, does she deserve the title Theotokos, which means mother of God? And I think as all Protestants should, you should affirm this title, not because of the exaltation of Mary that's there. Although scripture does say that Mary should be exalted in some extent, not, not revered, not worshiped, but should be exalted. But this isn't saying so much as about Mary as it is about Jesus. By calling Mary the mother of God, you are saying that Jesus is God. This is not saying anything special about Mary other than she was the person who was blessed to carry Jesus. Right. And that's an important distinction to make because, um, I mean, we'll talk, we might talk about it a little more later, but um, uh, there's definitely a lot of room for problems when you start to elevate Mary uh, higher than, higher than what scripture does above that, that human standing that, um, she was very privileged to be able to give birth to Jesus, but, um, 
not uh, not divine in any way. And what's ironic is they met at the Church of Mary in Ephesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's because church history teaches that Mary died in Ephesus. I don't know if you know that, but that's I why, did not know that. That's why, yeah, there's the Church of Mary there because it's said like after stuff went down, eighty seventy in Jerusalem. That's kind of where she made her way. Man, yeah, crazy stuff. Um, it also, you said it condemned Pelagianism. Uh, Pelagianism, for those who don't know, is the belief that humans by nature are fundamentally good and that Adam's fall only set a bad example for us. Uh, Pelagius himself taught that we don't need grace necessarily to be saved, but it's only helpful in us achieving salvation. The weird thing about Pelagianism is this is something that we've seen an uptick in in the U.S., that there's a fundamental goodness of humans and that while Jesus is something that's helpful for life, it is not something that is absolutely necessary for salvation. In fact, it has been said by uh, individuals um, much smarter than me that the natural religion of humans, particularly American, towards God is that of Pelagianism, that we are good with God. The only time that we get out of the way is when we start doing stupid stuff. But at our birth, we are at peace with God. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that um, Pelagius would fit right into um, so many of our college campuses, our schools, our um, you know workplaces of you know, at, at, you know, the end of the day, humanity is generally good and, uh, there's really nothing that bad. And it's, yeah. And it's only, you know, when we do like egregious acts of, you know, uh, murder or, um, you know, um, you know, stealing vast amounts of, of things or, um, I mean, I don't know, terrorism or, or whatever it be. Uh, that is when really we're disconnected from God, but generally we're, we're good people. So we're all three dads. Um, I have a two-year-old, um, and I can say that she has been showing her sinful nature uh, for quite some time. Um, I mean, for- <laughs> the second my child could open his mouth and actually communicate, it right. did not take him very long to learn to lie. Yeah, I yep. didn't teach my sons how to lie, but they're, you know, they're experts. At yeah, it. yeah, absolutely. And the counterpoint to Pelagianism was brought to the church's attention by uh, Augustine. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it, uh, taught that humans at birth have what we call original sin. And original sin, uh, depending on your tradition, teaches a little bit differently. From the Protestant tradition, which we're all from, it says that at our birth we have sin in us and we are sinful. Um, We don't believe that that's taken away from baptism by baptism or anything, but ultimately this is something that we carry with us for our whole lives, that we have depravity that's in us. And it is only through God's grace that that depravity is lessened. That doesn't mean that we aren't capable of some good in our lives, but it means that sin is always there and will always be a part of our life until the kingdom comes. Um, It's just one of the more fascinating pieces of church history to me because Pelagianism is something that got really popular again in the Enlightenment. In fact, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, when he was writing a lot of his stuff, said that he wanted to fight back this notion of original sin. And Rousseau is actually the foundation for our current uh, education system, that people are fundamentally good and you can teach people to be good. I think that history shows us that you can teach people to hide their badness, but not that you can teach them to be good. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think Plagian Plagius, um, yeah, I think he was he was definitely um, mishandling scripture. Um, had some beliefs that were definitely contradictory to the got go- to the gospel. Um, I do I do know um, a fun fact about Plagius. Maybe Hunter knows it also, but he was from Great Britain. Right. There's I didn't know that. There's something that's really fascinating. It's that I empathize with the reasoning that got him to his belief because, you know, every villain has their origin story. His was he was this monk in Great Britain and he came to Rome, which was at that time kind of the Christian capital of the world. He gets there and he sees all these people living totally sinful, depraved lives. And he essentially said, you guys need to be able to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And this teaching of free grace, this is only making people realize that they can go sin all the more. But as we know, Paul says, grace does not give us an excuse to continue on sinning. Those who have been changed by the goodness of God will see an outpouring in their life of good works. And that's found in our sanctification. We should be becoming better people in the sense that we should be hopefully sinning less. We should be repenting of our sins. When we have sin that is so blatantly in our lives, we should be repenting of that and apologizing to people that our sin harms. Absolutely. Great. Uh, yeah. Thank you, uh, Kyle. That was fantastic. Um, yeah. We're going to move right on to, <laughs> this episode's topic. Sorry, it's taken us kind of so long to get here, but uh, here we are. We kind of already started talking about it. We're talking about nature and the means of grace. We're talking about you know the biblical canon, what the apocrypha is, what it has to do with uh, you know anything, the authority of Scripture, what the Eucharist is, what the Passover is. And I'm going to toss it right back to Kyle. Kyle, take us away. Okay, I caught it. I'm ready to go. All right. So, like JD said, um, we're going to talk about uh, first. Um, the nature and the means of grace. So specifically what we're talking about um, is uh, the difference between, you know, Protestantism, evangelical Christianity, and Roman Catholicism specifically. So I have this book. It is called Roman Catholic Theology and Practice, um, written by Greg R. R. Allison. Uh, Very good book. Very, very dense read. I read through it very slowly when I did. Um, And in this... um, uh, Greg Allison, he's going over, oh, going through many of the important topics in the Catholic Catechism, and one of the things, or one of the things here that he talks about is uh, the difference between what grace is, um, well, what what we would say would be according to the Bible, and then what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Um, so this is kind of the the, the main idea behind what. Uh, uh, Greg Allison has to say about that. Um, Nature and grace are interdependent. And what he means by that is that to have grace, you need to have nature and nature. They don't exist without each other is in in essence what he's saying. And that the two nature and grace, they exist um, in this interdependent relationship. Nature and grace are interdependent because they exist in a continuum or continuity the two were divinely designed to operate in reliance upon each other such that nature is to be a channel of grace and grace is to elevate or perfect nature. Um, so then he goes on and he gives, a, gives an illustration of this. Water is capable of receiving and becoming a conduit of grace when 
consecrated by the Catholic Church, it is used for the sacrament of baptism, which confers grace upon its recipients. I, I, I think that's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, one example that I've heard time and time again about the difference between the Catholic and Protestant view is ultimately that we believe that grace is this thing that's been given to us and is more of a one-time thing that occurs at justification. We have other things in our lives that like help us remember that or like kind of empower the grace, but itself is a one-time like conferment from God to us. Whereas Catholicism teaches essentially that Jesus merited unlimited grace when he died. And, you know, when you are baptized, you get a bunch of grace and you're lifted up here to the point where you're justified. And then through life, it goes down, 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 down as you do sins, little sins here, little sins here. Or, heck, you might commit a cardinal sin and then it super drops down. But then through the taking of communion, the confession of sins, works of charity, it starts to go back up again and you earn more grace. So it's kind of like a treasury. There's this treasury that you get to take deposits from, you get to put deposits in, or you take out withdrawals based upon whether you're sinning or doing things that are considered sacraments or good deeds for the church. Yep, that's called the treasury of merit. Yes. Happily enough. Yeah. So it's almost, um, and maybe, maybe I'm going too far with this, but it almost seems like under Catholicism's teachings, grace is more like a substance. Just like you said, you have to get some merit from the treasury of merit. But then um, we would believe that uh, grace is more like um, more like an act that God makes for, or an, a way that God acts on our behalf to forgive us of our sins. Unmerited favor. Right. And that's ultimately what uh, Martin Luther was teaching when he began the Protestant Reformation is that the grace was this one-time act in our justification where we are instilled with this grace and it is ultimately something that saves us. It is not something that is earned, but is something that given is given to you as a free gift from God. Kyle, why is this stuff important? Why, why are we, I mean, like just for the everyday Christian, like why is like chatting about like nature and the means of grace, like why is this applicable? Well, I guess in a couple a couple ways, right? He talks about um, put infuse or what is it? What's the exact wording? Uh, water is capable of receiving and becoming a conduit of grace. So it's almost like um, we're we're assigning divine qualities to nature itself. Um, and so understanding the difference between you know what the true beliefs about grace are, what the Bible teaches about grace. Um, it kind of sets you free from a lot of superstitious things. You know, I remember um, being in one particular friend's house as a high schooler and seeing their bottle of holy water sitting on top of the refrigerator. And I said, said to myself, wow, they actually think the water ha- is holy and has grace and can do these special things. But I would be willing to bet that if I drank that bottle of water, all it would do is <laughs> hydrate me. That's right. Um and also, I mean, it's just it's just an act of worship to understand God's word properly um, and to understand, you know, how uh, what he's done for us in the proper way. I guess those would be two the two major things that I could think of. Yeah. And to bring it back, uh, the refinery, we just had our movie night um, two, two weekends ago um, and we watched the movie Luther. Kyle was a big fan of it. Oh, it yeah. is a uh, pretty good synopsis. It goes pretty quickly, but a pretty good synopsis of the life of Martin Luther in the 1500s. 
Um, starts two with, decades in an hour and a half. No yeah, like pretty quick. Uh, actually, like two hours. Um, and uh, yeah, it starts with him being a Catholic uh, priest, and then it you know all the way to him being um, you know kicked out of the Catholic Church and um, you know. Uh, you know, translating scripture and, and, and getting married and, and all of these things. Um, but what, what was what I uh, appreciated in that movie is their description of how important, I mean, even still now, but not, maybe not as much when it comes to Catholicism is the use and the worship of relics. So they, you know, a, a bone that they claim is one of the disciples or, you know, early church fathers or apostles bones or, you know, the famous of all relics, the Holy Grail, right? This was the grail that Christ used at, at you know, the Last Supper or this chunk of wood was, you know, part of the cross or, you know, th- this piece of cloth was, you know, Peter used this to do what, I don't know, first of all, how do we know these things? And then, and then second of all, the Catholics would say, man, if you like, um, I mean, I, I will I will go as as far as say like worship these these relics. You can get grace. You can get unmerited favor by God. Uh, kiss these relics. Pray, you know, over them, under them, near them. Um, that, that there's some sort of uh, spiritual power residing in the substance of these. Um, these objects, I mean, that leads you right into the conversation of the Eucharist and, uh, you know, Catholic communion, if you will, how there is some divine ele- um, element in the elements of the grape juice or wine and and the bread or the cracker or or whatever. Um, and I really appreciated how the movie um, really showed kind of how just ridiculous that whole idea is uh, to, you know, Pray over a, a bone that someone claims belonged to some person. I mean, there's there's nothing divine or uh, special or spiritual about. I mean, so many of these things, and most of it's just tourist you know opportunities for people to you know pay to come and see or give a give a love offering after they see these things, and it's just, they're just raking in money. Um, but yeah, you just see how, how people are are deceived, and and they and they think that they can uh, run to these objects or to Mary, right? We were talking about Mary earlier, and um, you know, ask her to to bless them or to guide them or to help them. When when, when Mary was a sinner herself and needed her son to die for her sins, just as much as we needed Christ to die for our sins, right? And mm-hmm. the issue of relics is still something that exists in the church. It's not something that has gone away, right? We have, um, I think the biggest example is the Shroud of Turin that people, whether or not it's authentic or not, I mean, the Shroud of Turin, whether Christ was wrapped in this cloth or not, has nothing to do with it. It has no authority, no ability to do anything It any more than a piece of dirt that Jesus's foot touched at one point. It doesn't make any difference. Ultimately, it's Jesus who confers grace. It's Jesus who saves us. It's not some item that Jesus or one of his closest disciples touched and interacted with. All right, guys, we're just getting into the tip of the iceberg. We haven't even really dove into this yet, and we want to do a due diligence. So uh, come back uh, the next episode where we're really going to dive into um, Protestantism, you know, slash evangelical uh, gospel-centered Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, versus Catholicism and the differences between the two. They're not the same thing um, and what that all means. We want to do it due diligence and we have ran out of time for this episode. Well, thank you so much for joining us to uh, take us out. I'm going to read our 
doxology for the podcast. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, very short. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Can't wait to see you. Amen. Can't wait to see you in the next uh, episode where we talk about these things at further length. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. night.